0: Thank you. everybody. Welcome to the August 7th, 2015 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dussuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Denver Mayor Michael Hancock kicking off the campaign to pass new hotel and rental car taxes to fund an $856 million expansion of the National Western Complex. Patty Calhoun for Westward, we knew this was coming, but this is the uh, official big kickoff. What do you think, and what are the chances of uh, folks stepping to the plate and saying, again, let's raise taxes for
1: this? Well, no one loves the stock show more than I, but I do think this is going to be challenging. People, even though there are no new taxes, this would be an extension of currently existing taxes, people are looking around Denver and they're saying, it's growing. I don't like how fast it's growing. The streets are crowded. So I think this is going to have to be a really strong campaign to convince people this is a good move for the future. They, they've got a couple months to do it. They can do it, but they're going to have to work hard.
0: David Koppel from the Impense Institute and DU Law School. I realize this is one of these taxes that goes to other people, presumably, even though the, uh, an average Jim or Colorado is going to be renting a car to stay in a hotel every once in a while. But do you think that will help it pass, even though it's, it's, it is the extension of, a, uh, of another tax?
2: Sure, because it, it fulfills uh, Senator Russell Long, long-time chair of the Senate Finance Committee, observed that the the rule in taxes is, is don't tax you, don't tax me, tax that fellow behind the tree. And so when you're a Denver voter, out-of-towners who are going to hotels are the fellow behind the tree, so you say, why not tax him? Here's the answer to that. You have a finite capacity on how much you can tax that fellow behind the tree before he decides to go to some other tree. To keep Denver economically strong as a convention city, bringing in those people you can't infinitely raise taxes or have high taxes on them, so if you want to have a certain level of high taxes, maybe you can, and that's a good idea to spend on worthwhile projects. But when you spend it on welfare for big business, which is what this does, that means you've given up the capacity to tax that fellow behind the tree for something more deserving that will benefit the public rather than like schools or parks or something useful rather than for corporate welfare. So, again, the mayor is making Denver a sanctuary city for corporate welfare. I think that the taxes on the fellows behind the trees and in the Hilton hotels ought to be used for something more constructive for the people of Denver.
0: Eric a political analyst. Um, At the end of the day, the National Western Stock Show complex um, is known in Colorado and Denver as a really hot spot for about three weeks in January and occasionally some other events. I love going to the dog show there in February, but I can't say I ever go there more than once or twice a year. Is that going to become part of the issue when folks are voting on this tax, even though it's not something on their exact paycheck, but something they do if they want to rent a car or go to a hotel? No, I do think it becomes an issue. Uh, I think people
3: have an affinity here for the stock show, but it's more of sort of a romantic affinity than it is one of, I, it's something I really do and I'm a regular there and whatever. I think you know the, the stock show is much more magnet for outsiders than it is necessarily a, a central feature for a lot of uh, Denverites. My view is that the default position in Denver, unlike in most parts of the state or the country, the default position on any tax issue is no, and the burden is on the proponents to sell it. I think it actually in Denver over the past decade or more, the default position is yes. That said, I do think we're going to get to a point at some point. I don't know if it's this year. I don't know if it's 2015. I don't know if it's 16. I don't know if it's 17. At some point, we're going to get to a, a point where the voters of Denver say enough. I don't know if it's going to be the stock show issue. I don't know if it's going to be the college scholarship issue. I don't know if it's going to be the $10 million check to Adams County. I don't know if it's coming next year with SCFD or uh, performing arts complex redo or, uh, or DPS bond issue, mill levy. Some point down the road, you're going to hit a saturation point. It's just a question of
0: when and on what issue. Natasha Gardner, senior editor of 52 Magazine, wrap it up for us.
4: Well, I don't think the saturation point will come with this particular issue because it's an existing tax. Those are easier to sell to voters. Um, one thing I think that's interesting about the revitalization of this area, I, I last year spent a lot of time in the Globeville neighborhood working on a story for that. One of the things the long-term residents talked about was the heyday of both the, both the Denver Coliseum and the Stock Show and how much that trickled into their neighborhoods, sort of the additional benefits of the events constantly being there and then people being on those streets. So three neighborhoods, Globeville, Illyria and Swansea that desperately need some economic booming or just a trickle (laughs) would be helpful. This will be able to do that for them. Last night Fox Fox
0: News presented the first Republican presidential debate featuring ten of the candidates for two hours and the other seven in a forum beforehand. While Donald Trump and Jeb Bush dominated the total time, the other candidates seemed to strike a few zingers on various issues. Patty, this was a big deal. We just heard um, before we started rolling tape that the 24 million people watched the debate, so obviously it had a a lot of interest nationwide, at least maybe not for the full two hours, but for some of it. Uh, What were your impressions?
1: Well, I think people people around this country, just like the group I was with, were glued to the screen. It was like waiting to watch a car wreck. Uh, and in fact, it even kind of started that way with the traffic jam of candidates coming on the stage. It was like people getting out of a clown car. And in fact, the the first 10 minutes leading up to it with the Fox newscasters was kind of a clown show, too. It just seemed very unorganized. But once they got talking, I, the Format, God knows how, worked all right with 10 people. Donald Trump took the lion's share of both the attention and the time, but he certainly livened things up. I would say he was exactly what we would have expected. Jeb Bush was a lot duller, and he seemed more nervous than I would have thought. Um, but the other candidates were fascinating. John, um, the governor of Ohio, was the one who really stepped forward and made the most impression, except for Carly Fiorina, who was at the kids' table for the earlier speech. But it was a fascinating uh, lesson. I'm not entirely sure it's in democracy, but it was great. I can only wish that there were 17 Democratic candidates running so that we could have as much political discussion as we're having right now because of that. Rosie O'Donnell, I think, would be willing to run (laughs) after the Donald Trump crack last night. Surely there are some other Democrats who'd like to jump in.
0: David, I think Patty brings up a good point. At, at some point, do you think there's going to be conversation that there's 17, which is far too many presidential candidates on the Republican side of the coin, but really there's um, barely a handful on the Democratic side? I mean, we're, we, we swim in this stuff, and I can name maybe two or three, and that's tops. And even comp- to think that's going to be competitive, who knows? But uh, what, did, what was your overall impressions and reactions from how last night went down?
2: Well, the, the, the Democratic field early in the race in 72 was quite large, uh, about a dozen. And in 76, it was even larger than that. It might have been a, around 15 or so. Both times, somebody who was a back-of-the-pack underdog the year before, won, hardly even noticed in some respects, won the nomination McGovern Governor in 72, Carter in 76, and of course Carter won the general election. So there, there's nothing wrong uh, with a lot of qualified people in the party uh, wanting to run. And and I think the debates are a a good innovation that will help voters make up their minds, and and, and select potential people or before they uh, have to start voting. As, as Patty said, I think the the two who improved themselves the most to continue into the further rounds with fundraising and getting volunteer support were John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, at the the main debate, and uh, Carly Fiorina, the former Hewlett Packard executive and California Senate candidate, at the. Uh, uh, happy hour debate, as it was (laughs) called. We learned some interesting things. First of all, the the Fox moderators, I thought, did an outstanding job. They asked all the candidates lots of tough, on-point, well-informed questions, not a bunch of softballs. You could not possibly imagine, say, an MSNBC debate where those hosts, or CNN, were asking Democratic candidates such... Really tough questions, and I'm glad they did ask the tough questions. Because if you want to be president, you ought to be able to answer the, those questions. Even though Donald Trump uh, went into an, another Twitter tantrum at 3:30 in the morning about that, and some other people think that Fox is just supposed to be there to blow up the candidates. Is you know, could you? What are the three things you hate the most about Hillary Clinton? And ask <laughs> ask all of them. We learned interesting stuff that Hillary Clinton. There's so many ways to bribe her, and so many things she'll do. She came to Trump's wedding because he paid her. And I, I will say, I, it makes me feel all the more prouder about my wedding where we didn't have to pay any of the guests uh, to attend. Uh, Donald Trump was so low in substance, such a nothing-but-reality TV character, clearly one of the most, most interesting hair uh, approach, but had very little to say uh, beyond platitudes. And you had a lot of other candidates... Uh, who did have something to say and have some real ideas uh, beyond slogans.
0: Eric, I guess for me, the most, impress, uh, most impressive candidate for me was uh, John Kasich. And I, I loved his point about uh, gay marriage. And I think, frankly, that, that probably helped him get a little bit of traction, at least for the next five, ten minutes. I realize mm-hmm. this, the debate overall is, has nothing to do with next November. It has nothing to do with next week. If these, if some of these folks can get a little more traction, a little more funding, change their order so that they're close to the top tier, maybe some of the top tier folks move around. Based on that, as we look at this a week ahead, 10 days from now, Uh, Do you see any movement within any of the names we've mentioned? Yeah, no, I think there'll be some movement.
3: I think you hit it with Kasich. I think Kasich had a very good night. He also had a home field advantage. It was his crowd. What I was most interested in, in his response to the gay marriage question, was not his response as much as the crowd reaction. And yes, he's their governor Mm -hmm. and he's their favorite, but nonetheless, that was a very warm reaction. And other people who took a different attitude on that issue did not get that reaction. So Mm -hmm. perhaps the Times the times they are changing, and as it's Ohio they say, and it's, say. It's, it's also Ohio. Now, that said, I find myself with this whole Republican primary, and, yes, I'm a political analyst and uh, rep- or at least reputed to be one, but <laughs> I, I sometimes question my own judgment about how to evaluate them. If I'm thinking that John Kasich is really hitting it and nailing it um, and Donald Trump is falling on his face, but then the polls say people love Donald Trump, and, and uh, to the extent that Trump is the flavor of the day, the week, the month, or a longer period of time, I question my own judgment because I just don't get it. I don't see it uh, in any way, shape, or form. I agree with David as to the Fox News um, troika, the the the, the three uh, moderators I thought they did really uh, well above average job of handling this. They were inquisitors. Some of the moments between Megyn Kelly and Donald Trump, I mean, I think those were great TV moments. And and more credit to her when you have Frank Bruni, a left of center liberal commentator uh, in the New York Times writing a column this morning with a shout out to the three Fox hosts. Uh, that That tells you something. The most important moment of the evening in terms of lasting impact was in the first 15 seconds. And that's when the question was, who will pledge to support or who will who here will not pledge to support the nominee of the party? And Trump raised his hand and it was the start of what I think was a bad evening for him. But again, who am I? Who am I to judge here? Uh, Just some real quick one word uh, descriptions or one or two word descriptions. Bush, safe, defensive, Trump. I could go on and on embarrassment, buffoon, bombastic, you name it. Uh, Rubio, I think, had a good evening as well. I I put him down as polished. Huckabee, preacher. Paul, isolationist. Uh, Walker, polished but a little bit overly programmed. Kasich, maybe breakout. Finally, the last breakout candidate was uh, Carly Fiorina, who no one saw because she was on the early show. But uh, everyone read the news clips and then saw some of the news, uh, some of the some of the video clips, uh, and she'll she'll be on the main stage from here on
0: out. Natasha, I, I'm not sure if I agree totally on the um, how well the moderators did. It, it seemed a little back and forth. I at least have one problem with uh, the producers picking the last last moment of the debate. Last question of the debate being about not about faith or what how faith might be part of your decision, but has God talked to you? It, it was almost mm-hmm. like as a parting shot to John Stewart saying, "Don't you want to stick around another week just to talk about this <laughs> one question?" But uh, all that being aside, <laughs> what did you think about the debate? What stood out for you?
4: Well, who knows? It might force John Stewart out of retirement just to come back and. <laughs> do a special on that question. If anything alone. would, it would be that, yes. Yeah, you know, it raises an interesting question um, about the media's treatment of Donald Trump right now, and I'm guilty of it, too. Like, I, It's so easy to just sort of be gleeful about what he brings to the race, but we also have to be careful about how we have these conversations right now, not only with Trump, but with the questions that we choose to give to any of these candidates. You know, to borrow from from the Sound of Music, I think Republicans right now are saying, like, how do we solve a problem like Donald Trump? And each of the candidates have a very different take yesterday. Some were combative, some were not. You have somebody like Mark Rubio who basically was like I'm in a room by myself, I'm going to give really nice quotes and make a plea for why I should be a vice presidential candidate and I think he did that well. But everyone was no one had a good way of how do we get around this big elephant in the room? And and I don't think that's going to stop with the Republicans. I think it's going to to be a big part of Hillary Clinton's campaign as well. So, as we're looking at that, how do we deal with a problem like Donald Trump. not that he's a problem, but our coverage of him sometimes is. And we need to be looking at the presidential election as the important position, race, that it is, and treat it, treat it that way.
0: I've heard a lot of comments about Donald Trump, but uh, you have just made sure that I will never watch Sound of Music the same ever again. <laughs> well done, Natasha, well done. <laughs> This week, the Aurora Theater trial went into its final phase after a verdict in Phase 2, based on the defendant's mental health, was reached in less than three hours. In the final phase, victims and family members testified and final arguments were made on Thursday. The jury deliberates as we speak right now. So as we, as we talk on uh, Friday at noon, we don't know if anything's going to be done between now and the broadcast, but uh, hopefully uh, we'll know about that soon. David, uh, you are our attorney at the table. Um, Were you surprised at the length of time that phase two took? And exactly what does that mean between phase two and phase three?
2: Well, phase two is, phase one was do you find aggravating factors? Yes, a whole bunch of them. Phase two is now let's look at the mitigating factors and now make a decision to the mitigators outweigh the aggravators. Uh, The mitigators are that the criminal was raised by a loving family, had friends earlier in life who... Still care about him was not is not a career criminal. Those don't those are mitigators maybe, but those don't seem to outweigh uh, the enormous aggravating factors. And now now we're in phase three. Is is what are you going to do about that? Which is now for the first time the jury is not just making factual findings uh, but exercising its own judgment. They're the only people, none of us at the table watched the whole thing live for every minute. They did. And I think that's the it's the genius of our American system that they, representing the community with their collective judgment, their ability to deliberate together and learn from each other, will make the decision. So I'll, I'll defer to what they decide. One thing, they won't be taken into consideration because they can't. You can't hold a person's decision not to testify against them. But legally outside of the case, it's interesting that the criminal never took the opportunity to speak, including at this final phase. The Tucson murderer at a, uh, in court spoke, and it was part of a plea agreement of, of life in prison, by which he said, I was mentally ill when I did it. I'm still mentally ill, but less so However, I'm now at a point where I do understand what I did was really wrong and I deeply regret it. If I weren't a defense attorney, I would want my client to be able to say something like that. The fact that he didn't, I might infer, suggests that he doesn't think that. That he still believes in that theory of how he gained value for his own life by taking away the lives of other people, which is really the same theory. Uh, details can vary, but it's the same theory that most premeditated murderers use.
0: Eric, uh, what about this week has uh, struck you as point I mean, the, the three hours to deliberate phase two, uh, any of the testimony we've heard, um, take your pick. Well, there was
3: wrenching testimony. As we sit here, as you point out, at, at noon today, uh, there'll be a verdict coming down or, or a decision in terms of the penalty phase whether it's in the coming hours or in the coming days and I'm not going to guess what that will be, but if it is that Mr. Holmes receives the death penalty and I think there's substantial odds that perhaps that's the way it goes, I've been thinking and trying to put myself in the future. It's now 2015. So let's jump ahead 20 years or 25 years to when this penalty might actually get carried out and all of a sudden it's 2035 or 2038 or 2040 and who knows what the world looks like. I do not see any scenario where this state, for better or for worse, and you can argue the merits, has a death penalty at that point in time. Where the country perhaps has a death penalty at that point in time. Perhaps the governor then is, you know, Governor Teddy Hickenlooper, and uh, who knows what, even if we had a death penalty, uh, what decision he would reach on it. Uh, I'm not sure I would sell a life insurance policy to James Holmes, even if he is sentenced to death. But it's not because I ever see him strapped to a gurney. It's because I see him perhaps at risk with the rest of the prison population. But my gut tells me no matter what the sentence is, that James Holmes will probably live to a a fairly old age behind the bars of, of some Colorado state prison.
0: Natasha, do you think uh, if there is to be a more community conversation about the death penalty, does it happen after this decision? Does it happen finally when the the jurors give their decision, does it happen after that? Or has it needed to happen up to this point? Because once the decision comes down, people tend to forget about as big of an issue this is, Mm -hmm. People tend to, once it's off the front page, people tend to forget about it, what do you think?
4: They do tend to forget about it, and I think it is a conversation that we should have been having and then do need to have. I also think there's a a maybe more important conversation that needs to happen, and that's a question of mental health and destigmatizing mental illness in our communities. That conversation has been stalled and complicated by this trial, and I'm interested to see with the conclusion of the trial if we can start moving forward and talking about mental mental health and mental illness in a different way that allows us to look at programs and funding and services that can truly help a population that has almost nothing to do very very slim connections to what's what happened in aurora i mean in particular we know this one in four people in america will suffer from the spectrum of mental illness whether that's depression to schizophrenia in their lifetimes this is not a small problem we need to have serious discussions about those and this seems like a good time to say all right closing the book on what happened there let's start to have a candid conversation
0: Patty, in the meantime, of this very high-profile national case that we've been following, uh, there a, a case came and almost was done with uh, the Farrow uh, murderers. That are, that, that murder may go, uh, that accused murder may be uh, found guilty and go to the death penalty as well. Um, since we have plenty to talk about when it comes to capital punishment, do you think the conversation is going to happen?
1: Yes, the conversation will definitely happen because the Dexter Lewis jury is out right now in Denver. Denver has not had a a death penalty case in a long time, as opposed to Arapahoe County, and I think no matter what the decision is made there, there's going to be a lot of discussion in Denver, and clearly there's going to be discussion in the case of James Holmes, because even even if the decision is to put him to death, he is going to be here for a very long time. We are still talking about Nathan Dunlap, and even before Governor Hickenlooper decided to kick the can down the road on that. The wounds were still open. The discussion hasn't happened. And I think the state, it's time for the state to really talk about the death penalty, how we feel about it, how we feel about mental health issues, and where we're going from here. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we're a little, little chatty with the rest of the topic, so we're going to go right to our uh, favorite part of the show Disgrace of the Week. Patty Cahoon, as always, please start us off.
1: Oh, the photographs from yesterday, down in southwestern Colorado, where the Animas River, because of EPA cleanup, is now incredibly polluted, that all recreation is off, all agricultural watering is off, while the river kind of cleans itself, if it can. Just a tragedy for that part of the country.
2: David. President Obama's disgusting speech at American University, where he said that people who are critics of his deal to put Iran on the path to nuclear weapons legally, uh, are making common cause with the Death to America Ayatollahs. Uh, That group includes people like Charles Schumer, the critics, uh, who are not doing this for partisan purposes but because of sincere beliefs on American security. President Kennedy, when he was selling his nuclear test ban treaty, which also had a lot of skepticism about it, never stooped to the disgusting step of saying that people who questioned that uh, were supporters of communism. Eric.
3: Ditto, Patty. Ditto, David. I'll add uh, a different direction. The whole dust up over the last several months about what should be a very innocuous phrase of all lives matter and how Democratic presidential candidates, whether it's Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, Martin O'Malley or university presidents have been forced to recant because somehow that's a slur on or it's not giving due respect to black lives. But uh, if, if we have reached a level of political correctness, and no, I'm not uh, mimicking Donald Trump here and his attack on PC, but if we've reached a level of political correctness in this country when you cannot even state a truism, uh i think democrats might have to uh look in the mirror and 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 the left side of this country might have to look in the mirror a bit natasha
4: The Denver Post this this week ran an article about possibilities to revitalize the Civic Center Park area. Um, The article is very interesting and is not a disgrace at all. What is a disgrace sometimes is we forget about all the spots that we already have in this beautiful city, including our parks, that we don't use to the full extent of their capabilities. And as we go through development and rebuilding and rethinking our city, we have to sometimes take a step back and look at what we already have and make sure we're using those spaces well.
0: Time to see something nice about somebody. Patty?
1: talking about a beautiful
4: park red
1: rocks amphitheater we already know that the auditor- the amphitheater and the area around it is a real treasure it's a wonderful famous concert venue a beautiful place in colorado and now a la- national <coughs> excuse me national landmark and not just the uh, amphitheater itself but also the uh, civilian conservation corps buildings around it so a great choice and it was just elevated
2: David. The Little Bear Saloon in Evergreen, which I learned from Westward, is now have it's reached its 40th anniversary. It's been a wonderful venue uh, for all kinds of, of music, uh, country, country rock, all bluegrass, uh, a, a great institution in our state.
0: You're here.
3: Eric. Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer of New York coming out announcing his opposition to the Iran deal. There's not a lot of independent thought uh, these days or willingness or courage to go against the White House, but he exhibited some, and uh, we'll see if others follow suit. Natasha?
4: On a week as historic as this, I can't not say John Stewart. His legacy, whether you agreed with him or not, his legacy to, to politics, to comedy, to, to news is, is incredible, and he will be missed.
0: Uh, I will echo that. I mean, again, re- regardless of where you're at on the political spectrum, do uh, not notice what he's done to change the medium. And frankly, I think people are going to th- look back at 2015 and see what kind of epic real sea change we've had in the whole idea of entertainment and news. <laughs> That's all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Remember that you can catch any part of the show or CIO postgame online, and be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes. Of course, we're in the middle of our August pledge drive. We want to thank all of you who are uh, Uh, already become members and if you you enjoy the show you haven't become a member yet please consider we've got a a wonderful array of programs the next couple weeks so I hope you'll take a chance to do that and make sure shows like this one continue to be around. For everyone here at Channel 12 I'm Dominic DeZutti. thanks very much for watching. Good night.